Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve man yeah we're here it is pearl harbor day we should recognize that i'm just wondering is that still taught in America's classrooms, a pivotal day, not only in American history, but changed the course, honestly, of the trajectory of the planet, I think you could easily assert. They still teach that, you think? Folks know about that? Pearl Harbor Day? I mean, in my history classes, double decades ago now, if not longer... We rarely got to the 20th century. Really? Yeah. Well, like we might get up to World War II, and then that was kind of it, because by that point, you were taking finals. Hmm. Well, I seem to recall studying. I, I remember, like, there was an American history course and a world history course. Oh, yeah. Right? Isn't that kind of the way it broke down? Then we had Mississippi history and civics. In the ninth grade, when I took it, Mississippi history, first semester, civics, second semester in the ninth grade. I don't remember there being a specific civics class. Like we had government, but it wasn't called civics. Okay. It was called civics in my day. In the textbook, I can still see it. Red, white, and blue textbook, about inch and a half or so, maybe not quite that thick. And on the front, big block letters, civics. How about that? Uh, not sure we do that anymore. But today, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. That is what was broadcast over the radio airwaves. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who told us that Eleanor hates war, Fala hates war, the dog, of course. He's right. I I don't know that anybody necessarily likes war, though I'm starting to have my doubts looking over there at Hamas. They seem to be obsessed with it. Well, they had a unique perspective at that period in time because they had just gone through, in recent memory, the Great War. The war to end all wars, World true. War One. True. Absolutely true. 
And, uh, of course, that turned out not to be the case. Right. But, nonetheless, I, I did see that a couple of reports from news organizations across the country that are located in communities where there are uh, Pearl Harbor uh, memorials, even, uh, but mostly it's just memorials to veterans, and, and in particular those who, who paid the ultimate sacrifice and service to our country, that they're uh, volunteers out sprucing up those settings, those parks, memorials, etc., in honor of Pearl Harbor Day. Also saw a report, I think it was in Milwaukee, if I'm not mistaken, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. This literally is is the title of the article. Why are American flags flying at half-staff in Wisconsin on December the 7th? Hmm. they got to write an article about that. That's Apparently. It's kind, of, kind of sad. I, you know, I didn't notice. I don't know. Is that the way it works here in Mississippi? Is is uh, Do we fly flags that have staff by order of the governor? I'm honestly not sure. I'm, there are a lot of smart folks on our text line that could probably tell us. Just a thought. Didn't know. But that's what today is. Hard to believe. 1941 is when all that happened. Man, a lot of brave folks. And, uh, and and that essentially, I, I, you could argue, pulled us into the conflict, to the war, escalated from there. The good guys won. Terrible deal. Yeah, I remember that civics book also, says Gary from Tishomingo. I'm glad to hear that. That was the name of the course, though. It's government now, I get it. I'm not sure if the content is the same, but it... It mostly was about just the the structure of our government, primarily at a, at a federal level. The three branches, right. the names of ju- justices, the presidents. Yeah. Didn't really spend a whole lot of time learning vice presidents. Right. Yeah, presidents mainly, and kind of what they were known for. Uh, the Supreme Court and its uh, its purpose, and uh, of course the the history. Uh, as the founders were cobbling all that structure together, devising it, hard to believe Thomas Jefferson, in his 30s, I believe, when all that was going down, he's a pretty smart dude. It's, it's fair to say he got cited last night, did he not, by one of the candidates who in there. Oh, I didn't watch. Yeah, I watched uh, about half of it, had another social event to attend, uh, but I, I did tune in, and then I consumed a number of reports. There's a whole bunch to talk about there, for sure, but they were asked, final question, uh, I believe it was the final question, what particular president they felt like was the best in whom they would emulate and I want to say it was Vivek Ramaswamy, who did himself no favors last night, in my view. You say that, but he brought down Nikki Haley. He he did. Um, I don't but, know if he single-handedly ended her run, but there's, there's going to take some serious work to come back from something like that. 
I mean, I didn't watch a second of it, and that's what I've seen the majority of the conversation be on, is you want to send American troops to fight Russians in Ukraine, can you name three? And then she couldn't. Uh, was it directed at her? Because he also, he also admonished Chris Christie as well on his lack of knowledge. But what he did say about Nikki Haley is, you just want to escalate this war so you can buy yourself a bigger house. That's what he said, because she sits on the board of Boeing, and he felt like that was a conflict. Of course, Boeing, a, a manufacturer of uh, lots of assets used by the American military. So that um, that was interesting, I thought. But I, I'm pretty sure it was him, I have to look that up, who referenced Thomas Jefferson that uh, was kind of I guess a president that he he looked at, um, and then Chris Christie. What's it? Uh, he that referenced Ronald Reagan, I think, and then somebody I believe it was DeSantis. Calvin Coolidge was his pick. Of course he would. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Um, th- there's lots of pundits that are weighing in on this whole situation with different opinions, most seem to believe that DeSantis came out on top. I will say I thought it was his best overall performance of the four debates. He didn't look quite as scripted. You know, just physically, he is uh, the looks on his faces, his Posture, his body English didn't look quite as awkward and uncomfortable, like he was really trying to force that smile out. I thought he did better. I also think, in retrospect, that Donald Trump not participating was a good strategic move on his part. I just don't think any of them really moved the needle, honestly, in terms of of uh, diluting his lead. I really don't think any of them captured any of his broad support. Although polls show that it, some polls show Nikki Haley comes out on top of Joe Biden with uh, by a larger margin than does Donald Trump. She made that point last night. Honestly, now I don't know that that again will uh, implore anyone. <laughs> to go vote for her. I don't know that that uh, would would win the day in that respect. But she made that point. Um, it, you know, called it out. The big thing was DeSantis and Ramaswamy, this was a big takeaway to me, really piled on Nikki Haley for her list of donors. Billionaire donors, which include Larry Fink, who Ramaswamy referred to as the king of ESG. He, of course, is the CEO of BlackRock. It is true that he and others have really been pushing the ESG agenda. And Ramaswamy said, you're more beholden to them than you are the American people. Interesting. Leonard Skinner bumping us out here, coming back with more Chip Templeton with the Rise Center at Ole Miss at 1035. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. Right. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go.
Yeah, that's right. So the candidates were asked, who's your favorite president? Chris Christie said Ronald Reagan because he was a, quote, slave to the truth. He's actually writing a book presently entitled, What Would Reagan Do? Nikki Haley, she indicated George Washington and Abraham Lincoln because Washington outlined what the government was intended to do and Lincoln brought a divided country together. Ron DeSantis, Calvin Coolidge, says because he understood the proper role of government under the Constitution. And it was Vivek Ramaswamy who did, in fact, say Thomas Jefferson, his favorite. He cited the reason being he was largely responsible for writing the Declaration of Independence. He said simultaneously, something I'll admit I didn't know, he invented the swivel chair. At the time he was writing the Declaration of Independence, the swivel chair. He was, in fact, a prolific inventor. He was just a brilliant person. Of course, we've canceled him across the country, have we not? We've pulled his statues down. He's one of those evil founding fathers. Ah, yeah, can't can't talk about them. I just go back to DeSantis picking Coolidge. Yeah. Like the, the one word that keeps sticking out in my head because it's probably the only person I've ever ever heard this word applied to is taciturn. Never heard of that. It means they don't communicate well or at all via speech. <laughs> taciturn. He was the president of the United States and rarely spoke. Okay. Yeah, he was a bit introverted. He was his nickname was Silent Cow. Silent, that's exactly right. Silent Cow. That was his nickname. Um, that's why it's just okay. Of course, DeSantis picks some oddball that's in the bottom half of popular presidents. Yeah, uh, I I thought that was off the wall. Honestly, the others I felt somewhat predictable. You could kind of predict that, but not that one. I didn't see that one. Didn't see it coming. Uh, Ramaswamy again really took Nikki Haley to task, but I'll admit she I thought she handled it quite well. I mean, she didn't let it rattle her or fluster her. He he um, he did say that she is uh, second only to Joe Biden as being a fascist. Why do we have to keep using this word? I that's one the left is just using on a on a regular daily basis. Rob Reiner, every tweet he makes, if you happen to follow him, I do just because I'm curious as to what Meathead has to say. But every single tweet is Donald Trump's a fascist. I mean, it's it somehow that's woven into every statement he makes, every post he makes. I think that Chris Christie hurt himself pretty much guaranteed he ought to be out. In fact Ramaswamy says, "Why don't you?" He said last night, "Why don't you just go ahead and exit the race now?" And he got called out on his position on gender change surgery for minors. And in the past, he has stated it's on the record that he doesn't think that government should assert themselves on that matter. That Parents should make that decision about their children. And this is where it gets thorny. Now, I will admit, folks, I've had discussions 
when this matter was being deliberated in our capital. This past session, I had discussions with state lawmakers, and at least one Republican, I'm not going to disclose the name that I spoke to, uh, elicited the same concern that we as Republicans don't interfere in matters that are decisions they believe should be made by families, parents, and their children. And that, of course, kind of gives rise to this this discussion about, well, where do we interfere in defense of the child? So it really does it not come down to, it's the same argument on abortion. To the left, that's health care. I just think that's health care. But to pro-life people, well, no, we're protecting the life of a human. And I think society does have a duty to do so. And the same thing is with the gender change surgery for minors. Certainly, I get this idea that government shouldn't insert themselves into these sort of intimate, sensitive decisions made within families, but if it's in defense of the well-being, the welfare, the health, the long-term best interest of the child, is that a situation where government should get involved? I mean, what's the difference between that and them just beating the hell out of a child? Well, I mean, the logical argument is, do you want children to have the power to do irreparable harm to their bodies? And does the government have the authority to say no? It seems like the government has already taken the authority to say no on a variety of other topics that are in that same boat of doing irreparable harm to your body. Right. You cannot, by law, go get a tattoo if you're not an adult. You cannot, by law, go buy a gun if you're not an adult. You cannot, by law, buy alcohol or tobacco if you are not an adult. You cannot enter into a binding contract unless you're an adult. There are lots of things that the government has taken the authority to regulate and make sure that children are not taken advantage of, even by their parents. Even by their parents, because um, parents, as you know, sometimes make bad decisions. So if you take the it's conservative to be standoffish and laissez-faire, then you would logically also take the same approach to age of consent, tobacco age, age to vote, age to enter contracts, age to buy alcohol, age to get a tattoo, age to drive. And then that's the central question, I think. But, uh, again, you just got to wonder. I don't personally think that Christie could – survived that now that that i didn't know that's where he stood and by the way this has been his position for some time now ramaswamy wrongfully accused him of some bathroom law uh that was signed uh into law by him when he was governor turns out he's wrong and christie kept insisting not me i didn't do that it was it was murphy it was his uh it was the subsequent governor it was his successor that signed that into law in New Jersey. But they got into this discussion about his position, and uh, and he, he kind of affirmed it. Yeah, I don't believe the government should intrude 
on such matters that are more intimate in nature and belong uh, in the house, decisions made by parents on behalf of their children. So, again, though, it, it gives rise to the question is, does government have the duty to protect a child from such harm? The problem is everybody doesn't think that's harm. Some people think you're harming if you don't allow them, right? That's the argument from the left, from the pro transgender people. Oh, no, if you don't let them go cut off their breast and completely reform their genitals, they're going to commit suicide. There are also people that argue they drive better when they're drunk. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Just because you can make the argument doesn't make it right. That's absolutely true. But I, I personally don't see how Chris Christie survives that. Now, I think they're all going to be gone, honestly, after the first caucus in Iowa. I just don't think any of them are going to gain ground on Donald Trump. I will say that they spent a little more time attacking Trump. Who's the front runner? Of course, it's more difficult to do when they're not standing on the stage. I don't, I don't think it has the same effect. Uh, but but so I think it was. You can even backfire if you're not careful. Well, that's true, especially with him, who's really good about coming right back at you when you attack him. Um, all that does is elicit even well, especially when even you give deeper. him and his handlers time. That's absolutely true. If it's spur of the moment, you get what you get. But if you say something and he's not there and he's not put on the spot, then he's got all the time in the world to respond. I agree. Uh, I will say that. I do think that immigration, I shouldn't say that, the border specifically, the chaos there, the tumult there, is becoming more important to voters on both sides of the aisle. Folks, if you hadn't seen it, 22,000 have crossed over in the last two days. I heard sound this morning, audio, from... A former member of Obama's cabinet that dealt with the border, I can't remember the name of the individual, who said, yeah, once we get to about 4,000, it's it's untenable. 4,000? We had 12,000 two days ago. And this is from uh, an Obama supporter, member of his cabinet. Coming right back with Chip Templeton. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. It's a travesty. They're still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, REO Speedwagon, <laughs> bumping us into this segment. We welcome to the program Chip Templeton, the RISE Center Director at Mississippi Small Business Development Center at the University of Mississippi. Hey, Chip, how's it going? How you doing, Gerard? This is a dream come true to be on the show with you. I feel well, like I talk to you every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we're glad you're with us, and we're awfully curious about this new center at Ole Miss uh, offering resources for small businesses. 
uh, in the state that seek to expand and, and grow their business and and their footprint. And uh, just kind of as, as uh, a prelude to that, Chip, before I let you talk about it, something we've, we've discussed on the show so many times, with all the technology that is available today, to, that's available to virtually anyone, regardless of their, their income, their status, the routes to market are way greater than they ever have been. I mean, there are just so many different ways of developing some some product, some good, some service in particular, and and then just delivering that to the market. It's it's navigating that maze that can often be be difficult. What makes sense for a particular business's product or services? What doesn't? And hopefully, you're going to tell tell us about how this organization, the Rise Center, can uh, can provide some some aid in that department. Well, we believe we will definitely hit a bullseye on your uh, your thought there. Certainly, the American entrepreneurship and capitalism is always the pathway to that as it evolves. Yeah. So, the Rise Center. We have six different areas that we focused on, and um, we have uh, opportunities with each of those six areas that a business owner could do just what you just said, meeting them where they are first, seeing where they want to go, and helping them to get that or talk them through the possibilities. Like you said, it's it's sort of a merry-go-round. A lot of times there's so many choices, they either can't get off the merry-go-round to head that way or or they get off too soon and so forth. So we want to guide them through that process. Yeah. Well, in the in the six areas, cybersecurity, technology, commercialization, international trade, market research, digital transformation, financial analysis, I mean, those are spot on, all, all uh, as essential ingredients in, in uh, developing a solid business plan. Absolutely. And uh, our state director, Sharon Nichols, at the Mississippi SBDC, this was a, a, a vision she had that uh, we could tap into these resources that we've got and really help businesses grow on a trajectory that uh, could may, may even exceed their expectations. So we want to make sure they have the tools to, to use. Another thing I'd like to mention right quick, too, of course, the RISE Center, this is the first time we've mentioned this before, so it's a new term. And at the University of Mississippi, you know, we have lots of entrepreneurship uh, contacts like the Center of Manufacturing Excellence and Office of Technology Commercialization and a few others. We want to make sure that our name wants to be mentioned in that group of fine organizations, too, as another means of a business being able to tune into that. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, uh, just a myriad of, of resources, and uh, gosh, just thinking about budding entrepreneurs, really that that didn't exist to that extent. Uh, but we've seen a proliferation uh, and an increase in the resources, and in, in particular, right here in our state, including those which you just mentioned that are all on the campus there at the university. So, Chip, how does a prospective business that uh, could could get some value out of these services, how do they get engaged? First of all, I always kind of say it's kind of like going to your doctor. You don't just walk in and start talking to the doctor. You have to kind of fill out a form. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that they would go to our website, the MississippiSBDC.org, click on the I want to be a client button. Takes about five minutes and voila, you're you're in the system. So it's a confidentiality agreement. So we don't talk about your business outside of our area unless you give us permission to. So that's the introduction of how to get into it. We have about 35 people on our team, and wow. we assign you to the counselor that we think would most be able to help you at that time. And then as it goes through potentially to the RISE Center and organization, we get you with any of those, one maybe one of those six components that you called out. Yeah. There may be a multitude, and we work together with you. But uh, – that's how you get into it, and it's a, it's a long-term relationship. Let me throw a little statistic out to you, if I could, right quick. Sure. In 2018, 61% of our clients were what we call pre-venture. They were just really thinking about starting a business. Yeah. Now, because we have long-term relationships, now it's 76% of our people are in business. Wow. So they're having a long-term relationship with us. And so when we saw that and they realized that we're really quenching their thirst of, of need and helping them grow, that we could do that even a greater way. And that's what the Rise Center is there to do, to help them grow those next steps. And so, you know, if we have time to talk about some of these individual areas we can just what, whatever you would like to talk about yeah I'm so to uh, spread the joy of what we're doing yeah absolutely so first chip is there a cost for this we are so affordable you're not going to believe it it is absolutely zero cost okay well i like that, that. is what we do <laughs> okay yes <laughs> that doesn't mean we're worthless <laughs> <laughs> understand i think we're priceless but that's a little ego time <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 uh, Ronald Reagan and his administration thought this was a great idea that every state ought to have a thing called a small business development center. It was that neutral place where a business owner could go and have somebody to talk to and guide them and it wouldn't cost anything. Yeah. A lot of our people, I, the reason I feel like I talk to you every day because I know you're all about, you see things through the eyes of the business owner because of your, of your history. And it's the same way for me. I own businesses for 25, 30 years. And I, yeah. every day I wake up and think about if it were my business, what would I do? Sure. So, uh, that was, that's put there. And, uh, we went from being not a, a very, uh, not known organization a few years ago, but under our leadership of Sharon Nichols, I think we've become pretty well known that we're the go-to place where business owners can go and, and have somebody that can help them whether they're just beginning or they're ready for the rise center. I know people right now, Chip, I know people right now that, uh, in fact, I have a, a call with one, uh, uh, an upstart business this afternoon, and I'm, I'm going to refer them to you. They, they need um, this sort of counseling. Thank you very much. We're here. We represent every square inch in all 82 counties. That's awesome. All right, so – Give us give us a couple of ca- uh, use cases, cup couple of uh, examples okay. of folks you've helped. Well, I'll give you a quick example. Okay. Uh, the Rise Center stands for International, excuse me, Resources for International Su- Success and Expansion. But nobody needs to remember that. Rise Center is easy <laughs> to remember. So international trade would be one of those. So let's start with that one. Okay. We are so blessed to have a gentleman in our organization named Tony Campus. 
And he is someone who is not only respected in our state, but throughout the whole United States in the SBDC world as an expert in international trade. So I called Tony about a month ago, and I said, Tony, I've got something that never came up before with a client that I know about. And this client was having trouble exporting to a country they had been exporting to for years. And uh, they had a little bump in the road about being able for that product to be accepted. And uh, Tony says, I know how to handle that. And so they worked with that client over the next month or so. Uh, It worked itself out. You know, you can't tell the country what to do. You have to kind of know how to do that. Sometimes it's as much what you don't say as what you do say. But with his guidance and the, and the client guiding themselves, navigated to the promised land, and everything's good again. That's so awesome. That's a, that's a use case. That, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And, and that's just the, the kind of information that only subject matter experts um, uh, like your resource could, could help them with. It's, it's, that kind of stuff's kind of hard to dig through. Um, and understand, and there's always underlying nuances, typically, that you are not going to find in the readily available resources. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Chip, but, appreciate you yeah, coming on. Well, thank you for letting talk- me share that. Yeah, that's yes, awesome. Sir. Appreciate you coming on and talking about that. And, again, uh, I got somebody I'm going to send your way. I, I run into people all the time. I, I I apologize for not knowing more about this. I'm so glad to know <laughs> uh, about this because people need these services. Appreciate it, Chip. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Be glad to come anytime you need us. Thank you. Yes, sir. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Wealth Studio. With Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. It's gonna be a catfish Christmas. Santa's on the lake. He's dreading his whip off fishing pole and a giant boat for his sleigh. With a red life jacket and a tackle box He's bringing his ice chest bill to the top It's gonna be a catfish Christmas Latest job approval rating for the president CNN poll conducted November 1st through the 30th 37% approval, 63% disapproval I think that's what we call upside down Hmm Robert Dozier, executive director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association in the Element Well studio after the break at the top of the hour. Lots of text rolling in. Appreciate all that. So much news going on. Something that, that I've been tracking is this Supreme Court case just got underway earlier this week that concerns taxation of unrealized gains. Goes back to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, commonly known as the Trump Tax Cuts, which allowed repatriation of funds from foreign nations 
American companies back into the country with a one-time tax on them. Bring your money back over here, you're going to pay a one-time tax. Now, that, I think, was good policy to give these companies an opening to pay a lower tax rate to bring that money back in here, because otherwise they weren't going to. Profits that they earned in other countries. So there's a there's a lawsuit where stockholders are arguing that they should not have to pay tax. They didn't really get any income from that. They haven't sold any stock, yet they're having to share in the repatriation tax. Honestly, just reading the reports from the deliberations at the Supreme Court, I'm extremely concerned. I, I, I'm shocked a bit at uh, what appear to be kind of the indications from the justices. Depending on how this ruling goes, it opens up the door for the absolute holy grail to the likes of Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders and even President Joe Biden, who have been calling for a wealth tax for some time. This could open the door up for that. Now, again, this would not be levied initially, at least, and according to what they're telling us, if you should believe what they say, this would only apply to very wealthy people, uh, anywhere from those with $500 million of wealth to a billion, just depending on whose proposal you review. But in my opinion, it never stops there. It won't be limited to just that. And it's an extremely dangerous precedent, extremely dangerous. It's got all kinds of administrative challenges, like how do you figure out at any point in time when something is worth more than it previously was? How do, when do you measure that? What's the measurement period? Is it on an annual basis? It was worth this much? Let's say it's equity in a company. Stops. Shares you own. It's worth this much at the beginning of the year. It's worth this much at the end of the year. And what happens when the value decreases? Government going to start writing checks to offset value increases in prior years? I mean, get into all kinds of complicated scenarios. Honestly, we don't have enough people. In the accounting world, in the IRS, my gosh, even with the 80,000 new agents they want to hire, just to track that. But it's it's concerning. They, they've brought up cases, I didn't even know about cases, going back to 1895 and 1871 concerning the taxation of, it really wasn't so much about the taxation of wealth as much as it was and this is something, Morano, you've heard me say so many, many times, define income. Anytime somebody says, we just need everybody to pay a flat percent, blah, 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 and my, my response always is, flat percent on what? And most people think about just their W-2 income. Well, that's a teeny tiny fraction of the thousands of pages in the IRS code that define income. And I, I wasn't aware until I read this report earlier this morning, that there was an, actually a case in 1895 about defining income. Now imagine how much more complicated that is today relative to 1895. 
So that's what's at stake here. It, this is a concern. Um, Justice Elena Kagan, of course, who would be in the Bernie Sanders-Liz Warren camp, she said it's, it's quite well settled that the United States may tax an individual shareholders on unrealized income from a foreign corporation because these sorts of taxes prevent Americans from stashing their money in a foreign company where it cannot be taxed. But they won't stop there. That they, You know it won't be limited to just unrealized gains of holdings, shares held in, in foreign corporations. No way. That's not what they want. They just want to confiscate what they want. And it doesn't matter. They spend whatever the heck they want, whether they got the money for it or not. Time for a break here in the Element Well studio. Fox News, Super Talk News, and Robert Dozier with the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Uh, we welcome uh, to the program Robert Dozier, Executive Director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association. Robert, good to have you on. Good to see you, sir. Good morning. So, CBS, uh, a very large uh, operator of pharmacies, and of course they're into a lot of other things too. They don't just uh, dispense prescription drugs. They are working on a model uh, that they intend to implement that really changes, revamps the way prescription drugs are priced. It's, it's very complex. Uh, the, I think the average person doesn't understand <laughs> it, and uh, there are a lot of moving parts. I've shared with you before that I, I have uh, just viewed flowcharts, if you will, graphic depictions of uh, the just the, the route and the flow of uh, pharmaceuticals and, and drugs from the manufacturer all the way to the end user. And it, you, you just start, start turning it like, which way do I look at this thing? There's so many moving parts, so many entities, so many back and forth. It just hurts your head. Look at that. Tell us what CVS is doing here, how they're changing this model. Well, um, I agree with everything you just said a while ago. And and the problem with that we see in the prescription drug world is you have too many hands out in there, too many middlemen, and it is a very complex model. And for the past um, two years, our association has been pushing a reimbursement model methodology that does just this. We're down okay. at the legislature, and I think you're a little bit familiar with it. Yeah. It's basically a cost plus methodology, okay. and it adds a lot of transparency to it. Well, you know, here we are six, nine months later, and all of a sudden, CVS announces they're going to a cost plus methodology to add more transparency. The reason why the PBMs and Express Scripts is pharmacy another, benefit managers for the benefit. That's of our right, audience, pharmacy yeah. benefit managers. The reason why they are all of a sudden now preaching transparency and preaching a cost plus methodology is two reasons. One is the federal government, uh, Congress, and the FTC are having a lot of hearings uh, to talk about this this scrutiny and. 
this opaque business model that the pharmacy benefit managers um, act under. Yeah. And then the other thing that's also driving this is Mark Cuban's cost plus yeah. uh, health plan out there with prescription drugs. Yeah. So if you take any any normal business out there, it's based on a cost plus methodology. You go to the grocery store, the grocery store owner, he pays $5 for that gallon of milk, then he marks it up to maybe $8. And, you know, that's a cost plus methodology. In the prescription drug world, it's it's the wild, wild west. We really do not know what that drug costs um, the end user. But, so you're saying the re- – but what about the retailer? What mm-hmm. about the CVS? Surely they know their income and landed cost of the of the drugs they're retailing, yeah, they're selling. Now, someone like CVS, because they are also paired with a pharmacy benefit manager, Carelark, okay. they're, yeah. they're one and the same. Yeah. They're going to know more than an independent pharmacy out there. Okay. Because the independent pharmacy, they know what their cost is, but they never know what they're going to be reimbursed. Because the PBMs are in charge of the reimbursement. And, and, and I'll I just kind of dumb it down for you real quick. You know, it's kind of like your competitor is setting your reimbursement. It's kind of like McDonald's being the competitor to Burger King. And McDonald's is telling Burger King how much to charge for the Whopper. That's broke. Yeah, it's, it is. It is so a let me broke ask you system. This then, Robert, is it, do situations occur where. Let's say independent pharmacies. Let's start with them, and it, and it may or may not be different with respect to an independent and a, and a large chain like of CVS and Caremark. All right, did they they sell they retail uh, drugs, prescription drugs, and perhaps the the user, the patient, may have a, a copay mm-hmm. uh, that, that that they'll pay cash for at the at the point of of sale, and then the pharmacy files for reimbursement with the patient's insurance provider, right? That's correct. And then they get reimbursed. Do they have situations where, based on what you said, they don't know where they're upside down, they file that, and they get reimbursed, and it's less than what they expected, thus the amount that they charge was wrong. All day long. All day long. That's crazy. And, and, And so what we proposed to the legislature this past session was a cost plus methodology based on a true transparent number that is set by an independent third party. Okay. It's called National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. And we were going to say, hey, let's go to this NADAC model plus a professional dispensing fee. Everybody knows what cost is going to be. And that is one of the things that I'm afraid of or kind of worried about with this new CVS plan mm-hmm. is they're saying, hey, we're going to use cost plus a, a profit um, and plus a dispensing fee. Now, CVS is going to be the one who determines cost. So really, have we changed yeah. a whole lot? So we have to have a national transparent benchmark out there uh, because if we allow them to say well they're going to do this new model a cost plus transparent model well it, it all gets back to who is setting cost yeah. and what is cost yeah it's uh it, it's uh 
very much uh, tantamount to my discussion in the last segment about defining income. What's income? So uh, here we got a situation where, okay, how do we define costs? Because I can see where that could take a life of its own when you start talking yes. about pharmaceuticals yes. and, and see, prescription and drugs. That, and that was a lot of the pushback this past legislative sessions. The pharmacy benefit managers, they did not want to use that NADAC cost plus sure. methodology sure. because they were not in control of cost. And so what we have to do is we have to find a, a transparent benchmark that's out there that reimburses the pharmacies an adequate and fair reimbursement and help save money for the business community, the business corporations that are helping pay for the employees' health care costs, but mainly to help the patients, the end user. I, I, you know, you're, you're – term opaque comes to mind that maybe the PBMs <laughs> like the opaqueness well, they of, do. The, of the cost. They do. And it, and it is set up that way to confuse everybody because the way the PBM business model is set up is to benefit just the PBMs. If they went out and, you know, their big message is, hey, we're helping reduce prescription drug costs. Well, Gerard, you're a very smart man. Tell me how the prescription drug costs have gone down in the past 10 to 20 years. Well, it they, hasn't. They clearly have. And, and of course, there must be value in uh, the PBM industry because it's as you know, we've seen lots of vertical integration where the large Correct. healthcare insurers, who essentially have their profit limited by federal law, have said, "Okay, well, we're going to go expand and diversify into a new business that doesn't have a federal uh, limitation on profit." Boom, PBMs. Correct. Now, now I'm going to give you something to think about here, real quick. You know, uh, the current presidential administration, um, they are negotiating ten drugs with the drug manufacturers. Yep, Medicare. It's correct. And the PBMs are in the Medicare Part D plan out there market. If the PBMs were doing such a good job, why is the federal government having to negotiate privately on 10 drugs? Well, the whole concept of negotiation for uh, allowing or enabling, really, Medicare to to negotiate is confusing upon itself. I mean, I it seems to me more like the federal government wants to say, we're going to pay this much for this and this much for that. That's not really a negotiation. Explain that to us. What, what's the what's well, the deal it, here? It's, what's it's, the teeth here? It's kind of like what the PBMs do to the pharmacies out here. Okay, they throw a contract out there and they say you either sign it or you don't. There's real. There's not any real negotiation of none whatsoever. I, I, you know, I talked to a guy the other day. He's been in the independent pharmacy business forty seven years, and I said, "How many times have you negotiated with a, a PBM?" He said, "Never." So that speaks volumes right there, and it's the same thing with the federal government. They're going to these drug manufacturers and saying, hey, this is what we're going to pay, and that's it. Hmm. Well, I mean, the president's bragging a lot about how he's driving the cost down of prescription drugs because of that provision. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be the case? I mean, can we expect that? The Medicare probably. Yeah, and, you know, and I – I'm still up in the air on that. Uh, okay. It's going to take several years for this whole thing to work out, uh, especially when you start dealing with CMS and, and uh, HHS and all the federal bureaucracy. It's going to take a while. Um, but the thing is, we this whole prescription drug market is very complex, and it's set up f- – for that right there. And a lot of people say, oh, just let the free market work its magic. Well, there's no free market in healthcare. That's right. There's not. I mean, you you show me, and I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'll be surprised. Yeah, there's not. No. I agree. So, all right, so you said you're going to the legislature to propose this cost-plus model. we got to go here. But 
uh, where does the government, where do they have, we'll, we'll, we'll save this till after the break. Just stick around and we'll talk about that some more. We got, uh, can you stick around? Sure. Yeah, we got Robert Dozier, Executive Director, Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association. I want to dig into that a little bit and see how, how government uh, has a role here. We're coming right back. With Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Robert Dozier, Executive Director of the Mississippi Independent Pharmacies Association. So I just uh, I found uh, one of the more uh, intricate <laughs> uh, diagrams of the pharmacy benefit management ecosystem. It, it's brutally complicated. I'm not sure the folks in the industry understand all the moving parts in it. Well, the, it, it's true definition of the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. <laughs> All right, so I wanted you to come back and, and, and talk to us about what you might be proposing to the legislature. Yeah. You said something about perhaps adopting a cost-plus model. So can can the state just pass a law that would apply to those in the pharmacy industry? In the commercial insurance business, yeah. The, okay. the, the state Because it's regulated? Yeah, exactly. Okay. The state could. Uh, the Mississippi Board of Pharmacy, they're the ones that uh, license and regulate the uh, register, the, the PBMs here okay. in the state of Mississippi. Most, most states, the Department of Insurance does, but here in the state of Mississippi, uh, the Mississippi Board of Pharmacy does. They do a good job of it as well, too. Okay. Um, the, the the thing is, what we're seeing across the national level is exactly what we're seeing, say, with our state health insurance plan, with our state teachers and, and employees. Mm-hmm. Um, Representative Hank Zuber and Senator Walter Michelle had several task force meetings over the summer and into the fall, and they are seeing an increase in prescription drug uh, usage, not usage, but um, expense going up yeah. 20, 25 percent sure. every year. Well, the state can't continue to do that. Um, the problem is this. The contracts that the state and I'm, and I'm not um, criticizing the state of Mississippi or any employee or anything. These contracts are so complex that they benefit the PBMs. Okay. Same thing in the private sector sector with these employer groups out there. Those contracts, they benefit the PBMs. The contracts that the PBM throws to the independent pharmacies and say, hey, you either sign it or you don't. And there's no negotiating one bit whatsoever. So the market is not a free market like you and I addressed a while yeah. ago. Um, there's no negotiating right there. And that's that's the healthcare market overall. Um, you know, on, uh, you, 
we were joking off air a while ago, and you're showing me this flow chart, and it is very confusing. It's crazy. And, and I deal with this stuff every day. You know, mm. and what we were talking about a while ago, PBM stand for Pharmacy Benefit Management. But in the real world, PBM really stands for Profit Beyond Measure, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you get into all this spread pricing and and the cost plus model that you were you were discussing, uh, and that's what they call it, right? The spread game. That's right. Spread the, pricing. The, the spread pricing is the the true definition is what the PBM charges the employer group, and say they charge them twenty five dollars for that prescription. Then in turn, the PBM goes and they reimburse the pharmacy five dollars. Well, there's a $20 gap right there. That's the spread. Well, the PBM keeps that. And that and that is just one source of their revenue. Then you start talking about the drug rebates that yeah. they they get from the drug manufacturers. Well, when these drug manufacturers have to pay the rebate to be on the drug formulary that the PBM creates, well, what does the drug manufacturer do? They've had to pay this rebate. Well, they just tack it on to the price, and it, and that gets down to the end user. That's why the drug, the cost of prescription drugs is steadily going up because the PBMs are sitting here manipulating all of this this complex system, and it's causing harm to the patients of the state of Mississippi and the country, and it's also causing harm to the business groups out there as well, too. Well, the rebate model, just in general, Robert, that has been a bone of contention for some time. Correct. It yes, it has. And I'll tell you this. Um, uh, once again, uh, Senator Walter Michelle and Chair of the Insurance Committee, by the way, that's in correct, the Senate. In the yep. Senate. And, and Chairman uh, Hank Zuber on the House, on the House side, yeah. on Senate, um, the Insurance Committee on the House, they did a great job having these meetings. Um, there was a gentleman that spoke from a totally transparent PBM. Uh, the name of the PBM is Capital RX. They do not collect any of the rebate money and keep it. From the drug manufacturers. They pass it on to the employer group. They charge their clients a flat admin fee per prescription, whereas the traditional PBMs do not. And the the other thing is they reimburse their pharmacies at a NADAC plus a professional dispensing fee mm-hmm. model. Okay. Everything is transparent in this PBM right here. And they're slowly but surely gaining ground in the market share out there. The traditional PBMs do not like them. They not, they're not real fond of transparency. It's like I was telling you a while ago, you know, transparency to a PBM is kind of like sunlight to a vampire. <laughs> So, Mark Cuban, uh, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, a billionaire, made all his money uh, on the creation and ultimate sale of Broadcast.com. He he, uh, was involved in inventing such technology back in the 90s, the dot-com boom. He he knows this is a problem, and he's looking to totally upend it and disrupt it. Uh, Tell us what's on his mind there. Well, he he sees the problem, and he's going to a cost-plus methodology, and he's, he's chipping away in the market share right now yeah and you saw um several months ago maybe back in august i think maybe september blue cross blue shield of california is going to start using some of mark cuban's uh plans and everything uh they think that 
using Mark Cuban's cost plus methodology will reduce their drug costs maybe by about five hundred million dollars. Yeah. Now, one thing that we need to talk about is specialty pharmacy. Specialty pharmacy are basically high dollar prescriptions from the five hundred dollar amount on up. That's the real cash um, cow for the PBMs out there because they get to define what a specialty prescription is mm, and okay. guess and guess where guess where the specialty pharmacy prescription comes from mm. their own mail order house yeah. or their specialty it's, pharmacy so you have to get back to transparency it's and too incestuous it just it, is it is it is and so we need to definitely move to a cost plus methodology but the trick is how do we define cost yeah you know it's if you're going to go out there and have a true transparent model you need to use a national benchmark that is set by an independent third party. Agree. I, I, I could support that. And so I believe it's also true, is it not, uh, Robert, that the state of California has uh, either they're going to or they're looking very strongly at getting into the production of, uh, of drugs themselves, in particular diabetes drugs. I've, I've seen that. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen the that. The state article, literally get into the manufacturing business, the production of prescription drugs. Uh, number one, that kind of scares me. The well, it California, does me too. That California is going to do that. It does me too. <laughs> you got government essentially competing with the private sector. Yeah, it, you know, and that, that I have not read that article yet. I haven't seen. I'll look for Take it. Take a look at yeah. it. Yeah, um, but I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, California kind of scares me. <laughs> oh, I agree. On that one. Yeah, insulin is. I'm looking at it right now, producing its own insulin. That's that's on their radar right now. Uh, actually, it says the, the governor announced a partnership. This wasn't too long ago with Civica, a nonprofit drug manufacturer, to produce insulin for California residents. They're going to sell it for thirty dollars for a ten milliliter vial. Novolog. How about that? So that's yeah, I agree. That's that's kind of scary, but uh, this was this it has been enacted. Um, so. That's that's scary. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. you, so they they've got a contract. This this was gosh, this happened back in the summer. Fifty million dollar deal, working with this drug maker, Savica Savica, to start making mm-hmm. generic insulin later this year. Coming mm-hmm. on board later this year. You know when you see it happen in California so often, the other big blue states they jump on board. They you know they follow suit in these kinds of things. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea for government to be in uh, in a business like that. Uh, I think that's just that that concerns me. Mm-hmm. What's next? You know, what's the next business that government's going to decide? I mean, that's that is more socialism, nationalizing of an industry. But if if we had a truly transparent prescription drug market out there that was a, a free market, so to speak. We wouldn't be seeing. They things. wouldn't be looking for this. No, we yeah. wouldn't be seeing things like this. I, I agree. We, would, we wouldn't have the Biden administration trying to negotiate with the ten drug manufacturers out there. I totally agree you with know? you. I actually believe that one of the reasons, like I said earlier, that the big insurers, you know, the top five, as you know, insure like eighty-five percent of all the private coverage in the country. I mean, when you limit their profits, so you can't make any more than this. Well, then they start looking for ways to, to expand that, mm-hmm. to increase that. And so they, they stay in kind of their world, their industry. And then they start gobbling up 
their customers often or other third parties um, who make products that they insure. And, and so, would you say vertical integration? It's vertical integration, and it's just tighter control of the ecosystem, which means less competition, less choice. It's just a bad deal. But that's because government started by intruding. Well. My yeah. philosophy on that, for what that's <laughs> worth, <laughs> not much. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, good always to see, good you, to see again. you. Yep, we're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. to get the juices going there. We're back with you in the Element Wealth Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. A quick check of the markets. They've been all over the place. The old kangaroo, as Rhino describes it, I think it's a, a an excellent metaphor for the market. The uh, the Dow up about sixty five points. It has crossed the unchanged line a few times just since we've have been on the show today. The uh, Nasdaq is having a really good day, up one ninety one. Just gosh, listening to all these market analysts. Uh, there's pretty much no consensus, so whatever, you know, folks, I hear some say I've still got lots of cash on the sidelines, wait for the right time to get in. Heard one this morning say I'm fully invested. Now, I'm talking about wealth managers that are managing very large multi-billion dollar portfolios, and and two different takes completely. That's what makes the old buyers and sellers all are on, uh, on the same Mark, with respect to the Fed's potential action next week, they meet on the 13th to talk about uh, any any action on uh, the federal funds rate. They're all in agreement that the Fed will stay put and we will not get a rate hike next week. So I don't think we'll see any upward movement on the markets once uh, – Fed Chairman Powell comes out and tells us that, I think that's baked in. I really do. I'm seeing more and more investments in applications of artificial intelligence, something we've talked about on the program. The latest report I read this morning, my old employer, Accenture, is working with Unilever. And you probably wonder, what what is Unilever going to do with artificial intelligence? Man, it's it's sweeping. It's it's something that will uh, be prevalent in all aspects of the company's operations, 
from development to inventory management, production, customer service, order processing, accounting. I mean, just across the board. And so they've hired Accenture as Unilever. You, you wouldn't think about that for a consumer products company. But they, uh, they intend to leverage Accenture's proprietary platforms and, of course, their consulting services to integrate artificial intelligence in, into all phases of their operations. And that's just one example. There are countless announcements. Every single day there are new announcements of companies that uh, are commissioning projects and investing in the new technology to implement in their organizations. It's it's fascinating, honestly, to watch it. It's it's revolutionary, transformational. Again, I I have some concerns about nefarious uses of the technology, but I don't think it's enough to cause us to to just uh, abstain from any investments in any implementations of the technology. I I, I Always make the analogy to nuclear power, nuclear fission in general. You've got the positive benefits of it. Of course, you've got harmful to society benefits in hands of bad actors. And I think artificial intelligence is tantamount to, to nuclear in that respect. Speaking of nuclear, why don't we build, what do they call small modular reactors? Why aren't we just all over that? Just thinking about that and hearing former President Donald Trump discuss that in his town hall a couple of nights ago with Sean Hannity. Why aren't we just all over that? What, what's, what's the left's objection to that? Because I hear more folks on the right say, yeah, we ought to be doing this now. And I know they object to... Because they play on the emotions for their votes, and the emotions tell their voters that it's dangerous for the environment. What do you do with all that nuclear waste? It's going to be an eyesore and blah, 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 blah. And it's like all these questions have been answered over the last several decades. Yeah. And and you made the point the other day. I've, I've looked into that as well. France is busy investing in building out nuclear plants. And while the John Kerry's and the U.N., which just had their, their big U.N. climate summit, the 28th, COP28, um, while they're over there essentially admonishing Western world for their use of fossil fuels, they, they like, ignore China. Why, why are... It's a bit ironic, considering the location. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's true. In Dubai, right, it's where they held, held the conference. After they got the snow cleared... <laughs> In Munich, when they're heading to a conference to talk about uh, the catastrophic effects of the rise in the temperature, they get snowed in, does John Kerry in his private jet. Unbelievable. Some more about the barbs last night among the candidates. Uh, Christy, <laughs> he jumped all over Ramaswamy. He said, you're the most obnoxious blowhard in America. <laughs> he told him to shut up for a while. He actually he prefaced that 
comment, the most obnoxious blowhard in America. They were 25 minutes into the debate. He said, after 25 minutes, you already win the prize as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. And then Ramaswamy told Chris Christie, you ought to leave the debate stage, get a nice meal, and get out of this race. (laughs) Golly. Oh, gosh. Nikki Haley and, of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I personally believe did the best last night. I think that's certainly his best performance of the four uh, debates. They got into it uh, quite a bit. And mainly it was DeSantis and Ramaswamy jumping on Nikki Haley about her acceptance of considerable donations, financial support from uh, people who also heavily support Democrats. So the word is that they, they prefer Joe Biden. They prefer a Democrat president. Some of these business titans, such as Larry Fink at BlackRock, who Ramaswamy described as the king of ESG. But they're investing in Haley's campaign because they feel like, well, if we can't have a continuation of Joe Biden or perhaps another Democrat nominee, if that turns out to be the situation, we would rather have Nikki Haley than Donald Trump. That's that's what they've said and why they're investing. That's kind of interesting. We'll see. Um, The Washington Times refers to these four who debated last night as second-tier candidates. I think that's an accurate description when you consider the commanding lead that former President Trump has at this point. And I, I just don't see that changing anytime soon. But some of the the insults and the and the barbs were were interesting. DeSantis accused Nikki Haley of caving anytime the left comes after her. And she was kind of nonspecific on her position on the banning of sex change operations on minors, which is something that Florida has enacted. So she said that the law shouldn't get involved in that. And if you're going to be the president, you can't stand up against child abuse. How are you going to be able to stand up for anything? This is what... what um, she accused uh, Ron DeSantis of. I don't really know what she means by that. I, I heard that last night and didn't really follow it. But there's, so there's there's lots of back and forth, and, and that came up. Something that didn't come up very much that I was a bit shocked at was the border. And I, and I think that that's getting more attention, more traction. I have seen some post-debate interviews, including from some students there at Alabama and Tuscaloosa, which is where the debate was conducted. And, uh, and you know, of course, anytime you see these television interviews, they're, they're going to get kind of diverse opinions instead of sort of a single opinion. And, and it was, in fact, diverse. I even heard one, one student say they came out supporting Chris Christie. One said they support Trump. One said they supported Nikki Haley. One said they supported Ron DeSantis. But s- sort of a, a myriad of viewpoints after the debate. But it was a lot of name-calling, a lot of 
insults, and at one point that almost almost overtook the entire affair. <laughs> Donald Trump, I think, did did right by not attending. We're coming right back with the final segment in hour two, and then an entire hour after that on middays. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. On the island to the Sunset Strip. Somebody's gonna make a happy trip tonight. While the moon is bright. Welcome back, everyone. So, Alphabet Inc., a.k.a. Google, shares are surging at present, up 8 bucks, seven ninety nine, on their announcement of the new AI platform, Gemini. Wow. The thought was that it was going to be announced in 2024, so the announcement today is a bit of a surprise. It's kind of a kind of a complex rollout of this new technology. But I, honestly, um, we ain't seen nothing yet. This is going to really be incredible in a good way. I really do believe that. I think the the benefits significantly outweigh the cost and the expense. I, I certainly understand the valid and legitimate concerns. I hope we have the right approach in any sort of regulation that might make sense here. Uh, you know, I don't want it to be such so overbearing that it impedes with innovation, but it needs to be reasonable and, and well thought out. I know that's a tall order for Washington, <laughs> but hopefully that's impossible for Washington. Yeah, hopefully that will be the case. And I certainly hope that there's a bit of self-policing as well uh, by industry, by the private sector. Certainly hope that will be the case. Jay from the Res on the ceasefire text line. Lots of texts. We'll, we'll get to some of them now. I'm coming through Loosedale right now, and their big American flag is at half staff. That is because today is Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, 1941. Paul and Hernando says, PBMs have been the fall of pharmacy. PBMs all about PBMs. They are horrible to work with, pharmacists for over 40 years in Cleveland. And I, and I think the point there, Paul, is that, and I hear you, and I hear that a lot, um, that we don't have the so-called free market, that there's just not enough competition and and somehow it's under the control of a few. I personally believe that is the result of government regulation. The government regulation almost always is what leads to a limited number of players in an industry. It's the opposite of what the bureaucrat socialists believe, though. They believe, we can get in here and fix this so that we've just more competition. You hear that all the time from Liz Warren. It's quite the opposite. And in this case, I do believe it's driven by the regulation of profit. It's what was done in the Affordable Care Act. Nope, this is as much as you can make, insurers. And they said, oh, okay, we'll just go buy them and them and them and them. You don't regulate them. And the next thing you know, it is totally vertically integrated. It's got borders around it. 
and it's very difficult. The barrier to entry has been has been dramatically um, increased, and and that's the exact opposite of what's necessary for a robust, thriving, competitive environment. We don't have that, and it's because of government. But gosh, they just don't get that. Well, government intervenes in student loans and starts paying student loans. Yeah, good and point. the cost of education goes up. Government gets involved with health care and starts dictating what you can and can't do with health care, and the cost of health care goes up. Government gets involved in regulating vehicles, and the size and price of vehicles starts to go up. Absolutely true. Uh, 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 Almost true. like everything they touch turns to you know what. Well, in the meantime, speaking of student loans, you've probably seen the president forgives another $4.8 billion in student debt. You know, the, I started thinking more about the, uh, the the town hall with President Trump the other night. And when he says, he made this comment, which I think was maybe a bit ill-advised from a political perspective, just from a political campaign perspective. Yeah, I'm going to be a dictator for one day. We're going to shut down the border. We're going to drill, drill, drill. I'm for both of those. Here's what kind of is bothersome, though. Why is it that two seriously critical issues to our country, one, obviously, on the safety of our country, the the economic well-being of our country, uh, that that being the, the border and just how now we see migrants overrunning even the deep blue cities who were crying, Uncle, and then we got oil and energy. Just forget oil, but just energy in general. The fact that one person, in my view, in this case the president, has so much power over those two huge critical issues, that just says something about how our government has evolved. It's the forgiveness of student loans, even though the Supreme Court pretty much struck down the idea that the president can do that, he's still doing it. Another $4.8 billion. $4.8 billion. And, the, and still saying, I'm not done, there's more coming. Well, again, how did we, the president, the one person, get so much power? That is not the principle upon which this country was founded. We've drifted away from that so dramatically. It's time for Fox News, Super Talk News, a whole hour after that. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Please tell the good people about this nonsense you just sent me on Twitter. Well, it's something I've mentioned before, but apparently it's getting a little bit of attention now. It's something I've brought up in response to the trans movement, is that you? it's in the same 
vein of mental disorders as what was previously known as body integrity identity disorder. It's now being called transableism, <laughs> which is basically where healthy individuals believe they should exist in a body that is not as healthy. I don't think that's the politically correct term. But, for example, a 53-year-old Norwegian man identifies as being disabled and uses a wheelchair, even though she has no physical handicap. She is a he that claims to have had a lifelong wish to have been born a woman paralyzed from the waist down. A lifelong wish to be paralyzed. Many people that suffer from this mental disorder will go to extreme lengths to maim themselves. For example, there's one lady that believed she was meant to be born blind, and she blinded herself. Uh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, they, so it's, it's obviously a mental disorder. Huge mental disorder. And because of the push for treating other mental disorders by giving in to them, you have people that are trying to force their doctors to amputate fully functioning limbs, sever their spinal cord, or maim them, breaking their Hippocratic Oath, and they're pointing to the fact that doctors are willing to perform transgender surgeries as evidence of why they should be allowed. I, I can't comprehend it. I really can't. And and this is... It, the, the longer I think that we try to accommodate as a society that that sort of, of thinking, those sorts of just personal issues as opposed to recognizing it for what it is, in my view, which is a mental disorder, and treating it. But rather, we just try to accommodate everything that's just weird. That's just weird. How can you look at that and not say, no, that's not right? And then when, when you consider how many people of the total population does that represent? But we go out of our way to accommodate to great lengths. That's what the whole DEI nonsense is about. We go to great lengths, great cost, to accommodate just anything. In fact, we, we put it, we prioritize it. And it just feels like that virtually everybody else just kind of the, kind of the the normal people, maybe normal is the improper term, mainstream, perhaps, common, more commonly found in society. It's like you don't get a chance. You don't have a voice. It does feel like that sometimes. I'm off base here. It just feels like that. If you think about the fact that Every single day, the, the, the number of stories that we see coming through our news is always about the odd. It's, just, it's odd relative to what's sort of mainstream and not odd, common. It, it just feels like that. And I'd, it's, it's got us wrapped up in knots. I think it impedes progress in society. Certainly costs a bunch of money. So think think about the fact that if someone 
uh, harms themselves, such as causes themselves to be disabled. There's a cost associated with that. It, it, that costs other people who don't do those kinds of things. And I know that's a very dicey, thorny subject when you start thinking about paying for the cost incurred by others for irresponsible behavior. Because I would say that you're taking a perfectly healthy body or a bodily function such as eyesight and and rendering it malfunctioned, <laughs> that that is there's a cost associated with that. That's irresponsible. Incredible. I, I can't get over it. Yesterday, by the way, the Senate failed to advance an aid package for Ukraine and Israel because Republicans, and honestly, I, I have to take my hat off here to Mitch McConnell as the minority leader. He is the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. He stood pat and he says, no, we got to have money for the border. we got to address the border in this package. What's bizarre to me is that when you read left-leaning media, their take on it, the way they frame it, GOP demands immigration limits. Why do you even have to demand it? Why, why do you have to demand that we enforce the law? I'm talking about the lawmakers. Why did the lawmakers have to demand that the nation comply with and enforce the law? I, I can't I can't get this. And then you got Biden and and others in the Democrat uh, party, extreme MAGA Republicans demanding border action. Well, you see what they're now saying, by the way, the president? Hey, we agreed to funding for the border, except, you know what that funding's for? Processing. It's not for securing the border. It's not funding to ensure that illegals don't just cross at will. Because you know what we do now? We put them on airplanes and buses and send them into other cities. I will say that during the Trump era, we put them on airplanes and buses and sent them sent them back to Mexico. We're not doing that anymore. We're just processing. And if you look at the totality of the conservative estimates of those that have entered the country illegally since Biden started his presidency, you put them all in a city, they'd be in the top 15 most populated cities in the country. Yeah. That's exactly right. More than the residents of our state have crossed the border. Easily. The president says Republicans in Congress are threatening to cut off support for Ukraine unless they can force through their extreme partisan border policies. It's political blackmail, pure and simple. The stakes are too high and the consequences are too significant for political brinkmanship. So let me get it straight. The stakes are too high in Ukraine, but there's no stakes associated with 
God knows who crossing into this country. Even the FBI, you've seen this, haven't you? have said, yeah, we're, we're a little worried about possible terror attack on our soil based on all, all these people that are streaming across. And that, that's just what they're telling us. I wonder what they know they're not telling us. And I'm not suggesting they tell us if they're using confidential information, classified information, perhaps to continue to listen, if you will, observe and, and uh, prevent such an attack. I, I support that. But how can any rational person look at the border and not think that that's a significant challenge and risk? But yet we look across the pond at, at that one and, and deem it more important, more significant. It just makes no sense to me. And what's extreme about, hey, we, we just want to uh, secure the border. How's that extreme? We don't want to keep putting them on buses and, and uh, airplanes and s- disseminating them into the nation. Because that's what's happening right now. Without a doubt, that's what's happening. But yet, they want more money, and, and that's what he said. Well, we offered to give them more money, yes, for more processing, so more can come over. Not to keep them out. There's no desire to do that whatsoever. I do think that this is rapidly becoming maybe not the top issue, but number two. Top still the economy, easily number two. And it, it may overtake the economy as it continues to to just balloon and cause more problems. I'll, let's put it this way. And I pray this doesn't happen. All it will take is one incident of significance committed by one or more people who illegally crossed into this country and were just put on these planes and buses and sent on their way. That's all it'll take. Unless the media buries it. Gosh, certainly that wouldn't be the case. We're stepping aside for a break. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Now, at the end of that song by The Who is the one you would always depend on guitarist Pete Townshend. He's going to bust up that guitar. <laughs> that <laughs> Smash it into a million pieces. <laughs> Don't understand how they fly these aliens, says Lisa and Clara, Mississippi. I had to go through all kinds of checks a few weeks ago to fly to New Jersey. They took my toothpaste. I think it's more than three ounces, right? You can't carry on any liquid, including toothpaste. My carry-on. Yeah, it's a good question, Lisa. It's because they're chartering them. It's not commercial airplanes. They're chartering airplanes. Big jets. Chartering. It's insane. And we're paying for it. It's just missing the red carpet. 
That's exactly right. They're already getting the VIP treatment. Uh, totally right. Here, welcome to the country. Here's a free phone and a chartered flight to wherever you'd like to go. Uh, and, and often displacing veterans. Where was it? Displacing parents of football players at a hotel in one of the playoff games? You probably saw that. I mean, crazy stuff like this. Again, we prioritize everybody but mainstream Americans who just want to be left the hell alone, work, worship, raise their family, earn a decent living, live a typical good American lifestyle. You're just out. You don't have any voice. you got to be weird. KC on the ceasefire text line says, just say no. These people need someone in their lives who will just say, no, we're not going to do that. I agree. That's in reference to Rhino's report about the new trans-identity, trans-abled, right, is what it's called. Trans-ableism. Ableism, okay. Nuts. Kevin and Monticello listening to some of these stories is like going to Walmart. I already feel better about myself and not as messed up as I thought I was. <laughs> that reminds me a few years ago my wife gave me uh, a calendar, uh, page a page for each day that you tear off, you know. It was the people of Walmart. You, <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> oh, gosh. Some folks. I uh, know. They'll go out in public wearing anything. Funny, funny, funny. Her, all I heard last night on the debate stage was blah, blah, blah. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that, and it, it's getting a little old, honestly. But like I said, I'm not sure we have much more of that right after um, – after January, we're a few weeks away. Is it January or early February, the caucuses? It ain't long, Iowa. And once that's over, I, I'm not sure anybody's left. Maybe Haley because of her money. I don't think Ramaswamy. Now, I think so, she lost pretty much all of her momentum last night. Yeah, I I do too. I, I think she's getting framed as an establishment candidate. And I don't think there's an appetite for that among Republican primary voters. Now, if it's her versus Joe Biden, yeah, I, I agree with her. I think she's got a pretty good chance of winning. I think Donald Trump wins at this point versus Joe Biden versus a Gavin Newsom or an alternative Democrat nominee. I'd have to think about it. Not sure. And again, it's all about four or five states and only a few counties in those four or five states. She did point out that Republicans have only won in the popular vote category one of the last eight presidential elections. Only one. Absolutely true. I, I, you know, again, back to this border thing, how do we get to the point where so much of this, the, the control of the border, the security of the border, is based on one person, that being... He or she who is in the White House. It shouldn't be like that. These, again, it's oil and gas exploration and production. How did that get to a point where all that's sort of regulated through executive orders? It shouldn't be that way. These are big, sweeping, impactful matters. That sort of stuff should be determined by the people we send to Congress, not just one person in the White House. It's too much power has been conferred. 
And even though I, I certainly understand that the left is going to pick up on on uh, President Trump's comment about, yeah, I'm going to be a dictator for a day. The fact is, Joe Biden was a prolific dictator, has been. Day one, we talked about it here on the program, 32 executive orders, day one, most of which reversed the Trump era policies and, of course, infused DEI and climate as a central theme into all policymaking. He decreed that day one. That will be a central theme in all regulatory creation in the deep state. Too much power on one from one person. Too much. The House, by the way, just censured, this came up yesterday, what's the difference between censure and impeachment, just censured Representative Jamal Bowman for falsely pulling the fire alarm. And again, as Rhino pointed out yesterday, it's it's just kind of an official record that says you're a bad guy. You did something bad, at least, in this case. So it's he's the been, equivalent of a strongly worded letter in the halls of Congress. Yeah, that's, that's really it. Vents a little frustration... Let's them know how you feel, but doesn't have any teeth. Yeah, it doesn't have any teeth. Not, not like impeachment would, and that really only has teeth in so much that it's officially recorded as you were impeached, and then everybody forgets about it. Now, if you get convicted in the Senate and you're officially removed from office, that's a pretty big deal. That's a really big deal. And I, I think back on just how times have changed when Richard Nixon resigned. Resign just for to avoid impeachment. Exactly, and and the numbers kind of shaped up, looking like he might. But gosh, that gripped the country for a long time. Uh, what was that? Seventy one, something like that. Seventy two. It even got. Uh, it, it was the basis for some lyrics in the Leonard Skinner song "Sweet Home Alabama." Now, Watergate does not bother me. Remember that? That's what they were referring to, and that song was released during that time frame. Lots of controversial statements from Vivek Ramaswamy. I'll have to say I'm I'm disappointed in him. I felt like that he's kind of trying to be a Donald Trump in again in attacking his opponents and and uh, ridiculing them somewhat, berating them. It just it doesn't come across very good. He also had, folks, if you didn't see it, <laughs> he had a, a, a pad, a notepad, paper, 8.5 by 11, standard size. You know this was a prop that was already in place. He, I guess he brought into the, the hall there in big letters, Nikki equal corrupt and he held that up <laughs> it just like okay that didn't really do anything he also it did create a new meme format what's up you've seen some memes oh well, i mean anytime old... a public facing official or athlete or movie star or tv per i mean anytime somebody that's in the spotlight Holds up a piece of paper. You're right. It's going to become a meme. Yeah, I mean because they're in they're in that posture with their you can hand. Put whatever you want them yeah. to say. You're on right. The, yeah. That's awesome. He also uh, he 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 uh, attacked her because 
He said she doesn't use her true, you've seen this, her true Indian name, like Nikitra or something like that, that she kind of domesticated it. And I, I mean, I don't know why that's such a big problem, I, and uh, him being Indian as well, I guess. And you wonder if it's that's... Nimarada Nikki Randall There you go. Nimarada. And so he... I mean, is that really something to even bring up in a in a debate? I'd, I'd rather him talk about policy, honestly, and what they're going to do to make the country better. But no, they have to get into all this personal stuff. I, honestly, I'd, I'd be... Just fine if all the candidates stopped all that and just focused on policy. That is something I thought Ron DeSantis did pretty well. He he did pretty well at at uh, touting his record as governor and connecting that, if you will, to how he would govern as president. I thought that was honestly pretty good. Uh, that's the first time I think he's effectively made the argument in favor in his favor. Uh, consistent with that. He's, he's got a resume. It's a good resume, and he he did promote it, but he promoted it in, in, in a less condescending and sanctimonious way. Um, and he did pretty good with that versus Gavin Newsom last week. So I, I really thought he had his best debate overall, but I'm not sure any of these guys survive after Iowa. Uh, and it probably makes sense at this point for the party to get behind the one candidate, and that's Donald Trump, and start working on getting him in office, defeating Joe Biden. Coming right back with half an hour left on Middays in the Element Well studio. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. Ed from New Hope says, not a supporter of Ramaswamy, but when he said we don't have a health care system, we have a sickness care system. That Yeah, that's been stated before by candidates for public office, particularly at the federal level and uh, I mean, that's kind of a subjective assertion that uh, could be parsed out in a lot of different ways, what that, that means. You know, we uh, it's no secret that we don't have the healthiest lifestyles in, in this country, which is one of the burdens on the health care system. And we've got a lot of people who are counseled by physicians to change lifestyles and just don't do it. And I, I have 
you know, in private, physicians have expressed their frustrations with that. I'm sure you've heard that as well, worked in that industry. Oh, yeah. That, you know, and all they, they think about, well, uh, if somebody else is paying the bill and you're going to keep on taking care of me, they don't seem to be able to connect the dots that, well, no, this is going to cause you to, uh, at some point, um, have a, a unpleasant life physically and die before your time, lead to death prematurely. And it just doesn't seem to sink in. There's also at least a portion of the population that either through ignorance or naivete sincerely believes if the doctor prescribes me a medication, then that pill is going to do everything that I need to do. I just need to make sure I take this pill. That is absolutely right. I've heard that uh, as well. And, of course, even then, there's difficulty getting people to adhere to the the pill-taking regimen, right? Taking that medicine as prescribed. Still a problem. But, yeah, uh, Gerard, 2024 Trump-Biden prediction on the ceasefire text line, I think Trump wins. I mean, certainly, I think if the election were held today, I think he wins because I believe he carries those swing states. You know, and that's the thing about presidential elections. We've talked about that before. You could carve out 45 states and go ahead and write down right now, almost regardless of who the candidate is, just based on the party that they represent, who wins those states. It's those four or five that are unpredictable um, or, or less predictable. You certainly could predict them through lots of reliable polling. But at, at this point, I, I think uh, if the race were held today and it's between those two, I think former President Donald Trump prevails. I really do. I, I think people – and if for no other reason – Again, the key is the Democrats are going to vote for Biden and the Republicans are going to vote for Trump. It's that squishy mix of, I don't know that I'd call them independents, although that's some of it. It's people that don't necessarily just vote party line. They vote candidate. And I think that there are a lot of folks that for no other reason see the cognitive difficulties of the sitting president, and they have deep concerns about that. And I honestly think that at the rate at which he seems to be declining, and I I say seem, I mean just from anecdotal observation, just over the last year seems to have gone downhill uh, physically, and I guess you could say mentally only because, although the only reason I say I guess you could say is because Seems like since day one, he's kind of been a, a mess when he is um, speaking and when he's using his brain. If there's one there, that's just always always been a problem, although it does seem like that has deteriorated somewhat. Because you can't say, well, it's different today than it was three years ago uh, vis-a-vis his exiting a stage. I mean, he was doing it from day one. Like, where do I go now? Still doing that. That situation hasn't changed. One thing I, I will say, it does appear that First Lady Jill Biden seems to be more joined at the hip with him than she was in the in the early 
period of his presidency. And it it kind of feels like she's there to almost protect him, guide him. She seems to be a lot more cognitive and aware and just move about physically better than uh, does the president. So I think if nothing else, I mean, notwithstanding the other concerns people are voicing in poll after poll with respect to the economy and, and again, immigration, uh, the border, I, I, I would place those at the top two. I have concerns about the, the cultural rot occurring in the country, the march to mediocrity. I think that's kind of in there in third place. I think the higher priority and uh, the more pressing issues are the economy. I did catch an article in the Washington Post, opinion writer Catherine Rampell. And the title of the article, Mad at Biden's Inflation Record? Another Trump term would be way worse. And she points out a couple of things that are absolutely true, which is we are producing more oil than we ever have. Uh, under under Biden, however, what that ignores it's in spite of Biden. Th- that's true, and but what that ignores is okay. To your point, in spite of Biden, if he had not come out with this this narrative that we're running the the fossil fuels companies out of business, we're converting to EVs, we're not going to use oil and gas anymore, and that of course caused them to to clam up and honestly start investing into renewable energy just for survival. That sounds crazy when you got an industry that made almost $100 billion collectively last year, but they, they see a government that is just determined to run them out of business on, on the consumption side and the production side and giving them all kinds of money by the way, to produce renewable forms. If that weren't the case, and if Donald Trump's policies were still in place, I personally believe that in spite of the fact, as Rhino points out, that we are producing more per day oil than we were under Trump, that number would be multiplied. There would be more. So um, that's a lot. Right now, I think the latest numbers, I, uh, figures I looked at, we're producing about 13 million barrels a day. We consume 19. We've never produced as much as we uh, consume. We've always uh, had to rely on the global market for to meet our needs. But, of course, the more we produce in the global supply, the lower is the cost. And we've got plenty. Donald Trump, I think, rightfully calls it liquid gold sitting under our feet. I don't necessarily agree with his assertion that, yeah, all we have to do is unleash the energy industry and we can balance the budget and cure Social Security and Medicare's financial challenges. But nonetheless, I I do accept that if government would get off the neck of the industry, that we'd have more supply and the price would come down. Absolutely, I believe that is the case. I think that's logical. And so I do think if Donald Trump were still in office, that we would be producing more, even though we're producing more than we were when he left office. We were on that trend, on that trajectory. We had Anwar, we had the XL pipeline, we had an, an industry that 
was less hesitant to invest in new projects. And, man, all of a sudden we get this new guy, and he says, by the way, we're running you out of business. I can't help but harken back, Rhino, to that interview. They used effectively during the campaign. Remember, it was an individual in a wheelchair that uh, used technology to speak through um, a speaker. I don't know exactly what that technology is called, but he personally cannot cannot speak. But using technology, he's able to communicate. And he was sitting there one-on-one with the president. Yeah, the eye-tracking technology, okay. like uh, Dr. Hawking, Stephen Hawking used, where the, you no longer have muscle control of your diaphragm or your vocal cords to an extent where you can speak, but there's a screen in front of you with a camera pointed at your eyes and can track your eyes where they go on the keyboard. Okay. So you can type out what you want to say or in a lot of cases the, the technology is advanced to where it has certain phrases and stuff where you'll do a pattern with your eyes and that sends out a, a phrase like thank you or yes gotcha well what i remember in that conversation he was pressing he's a he's a climate nut activist he was pressing joe biden candidate joe biden no we got to get totally rid of of uh, oil and gas. we got to cease the use of oil and gas. And and Biden responded, yes, we're going to make it go away. We're going to get rid of it. I, I just remember that vividly. Like, if I'm in the oil and gas industry and this guy's the president with so much power, I don't think I'm invested anymore in that. Coming right back with a final segment on Middays. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. O'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Welcome back, everyone. It's the final segment of Middays. I always like this version because they let the bass player do the jingle bell rhythm. <laughs> Usually you got somebody playing the jingle bells behind this. That's true. Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> That's awesome. On the C Spire text line, someone asked about, uh, yeah, I think it's CJ in the Delta. Do you think Ramaswamy is angling to be Trump's vice president? I don't. And I'm going to make a prediction. You don't? I don't. I really don't. I think he ends up in the cabinet, per- okay. potentially. Because I was about to say, if they're not angling for VP, they're all trying to get enough political leverage to wind up on the cabinet. Yeah, for their future. Uh, just just building uh, their resume for the future. I'm going to make a prediction. I think, ultimately, Elise Stefanik is whom he selects to be his running mate. The congresswoman from New York that was involved in the questioning of the three college presidents earlier this week concerning anti-Semitism taking place on their campuses. I I just think she makes sense for him. I think she would be excellent, honestly, and I think would be kind of a good balance. Female, there's something to be said for that. Just from a voting perspective. But she's a white woman. 
That that could hurt her. Sadly, crazily, that could hurt her. But she's the least valuable uh, female box on the checklist. Totally true. According there, to intersectionality. That's absolutely right. And, and it reminds me of a, a very, very long tweet that I saw written by Bill Ackman. And this was concerning the the hearing up on the Capitol earlier this week, which included presidents of three prominent universities, Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania. And Bill Ackman says that the president's search committee would not, talking about Harvard when they hired the current uh, president, that they would not consider a candidate who did not meet the DEI office's criteria. I really do believe that that is happening across the country, if you think about it. I think that that is a front and center requirement. And I don't find her to be, and there may be some people out there that will say that I'm being racist and misogynist because she happens to be a black female. I don't find her to be particularly bright. Now, it's just an opinion, and that's based on what I've read that she has communicated and then also observing her in those sorts of public settings. But Bill Ackman says he learned from this from someone with first-person knowledge of the Harvard president's search that the committee would not consider a candidate who didn't meet the DE office, DEI office criteria, which essentially means that the DEI element of university governance, their, their participation, involvement in that, is quite powerful. I don't think that's a surprise, is it, given the trends and the, the movement? So Ackman says this is probably true for other elite universities doing searches at this same time. And, and all you're doing is limiting the pool of potential candidates. Oh, if they're not DEI eligible, we can't consider them. Is that not discrimination? Sure it is. You're shrinking the pool based on a requirement of race, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, Joe Biden did that when he created his cabinet. It's like filling out a chessboard. One of them, one of those. Without regard for qualifications, experience, background, capability, future value creation. This is not good. This is, again... A, uh, a stark, shining example of what we call the mark to, march to mediocrity. Wow. Unbelievable. Ray in Long Beach said, live your life however you want to. This is in reference to your story about the, what would you call it, transableism? Yeah. 
I don't care, but if I don't have the right to try to make you believe what I believe, you don't have the right to try to make me believe that you believe that you are something other than what you are. I, I agree with you, Ray, but more importantly, we shouldn't make any special concessions or accommodations for the wackiness. It's tying us up in knots, costing us money, impeding growth, prosperity. We're out of here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Back with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.